0: Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.
1: The Future Proof Podcast,
2: from News Talk,
0: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science.
2: Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been scrolling and watching a lot in the past week. It is the second time in uh, less than two years where I felt like real life was surreal, like I was in some sort of apocalyptic movie. We're going to be discussing how the Russian invasion is affecting space relations in just a second. But after that, we're just going to have uh, a really interesting piece about the science of sperm. Um, And I know it feels a bit weird to be doing that. I know it feels weird to me to be doing anything at all um, that isn't to do with the Russian invasion. um, But... I hope this is some sort of distraction for you as as it is needed for me. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. As I say, coming up in the program, how do you pick the best sperm? An obstacle course, of course. Um, first, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news and joining me uh, via the internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Our first story has to do, Shane, with international space relations uh, and sort of conversations that are going on above planet Earth about what's going on on planet Earth. Absolutely. Um, This is about the International Space Station, which which has been a a
3: shining light um, of post-Cold War uh, detente since the 1990s. For 21 years, uh, astronauts and cosmonauts and people from, from many countries and many space agencies have worked together uh, and um, they've done so in the, uh, all sorts of geopolitical um, kind of you know situations, including the invasion of Crimea. Uh, the, the 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 collaboration survived that, but it has now quite understandably hit um, some some uh, some trouble, and uh, this has shown itself this week with the Russians saying that they're not going to deliver rockets to the United States um in fact they they went as far as to say, Let them use something else. they're broomsticks, perhaps I don't know what um and so they they're not giving them the engines that are required to power the Atlas vehicles, which are used to to service the international space station. but the United states uh says that they have contingencies, one with the defense company and the other with our well known spacex company
2: so um this is a big story because um Uh, To give you a bit of a context, the European Space Agency um, relies heavily on on Russian um, expertise to launch rockets. I remember being in French Guiana watching one of the Copernicus satellites being launched. And as I was there, um, someone was giving out about the Russians who had taken a few minutes to relay back to the Europeans that the satellite had launched correctly. And it was seen as a bit of a power flex by the Russians, by the by the European um, scientists I was speaking to, sort of saying we're in control here, so we'll let you know when we want to let you know that the that the satellite is okay. So the Russians were in complete control of the launch of that rocket, and the European Space Agency, of course, launches many of its rockets from French Guiana. In, in in absolute partnership with uh, Roscosmos. The idea that they will shut that down will absolutely cripple the European Space Agency. And I asked um, one of the spokespeople for the European Space Agency for comment on that. and th- that They're just not able to comment at this time. Um, and I think that's because this is a, a disaster for them. It will certainly um, uh, restrict uh, plans um, for any Russian-European collaborations and for the International Space Station, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Oh, yeah, uh, one thing to say is
3: like the space stuff doesn't matter, right? What, what matters is that nations collaborate on things that are beyond politics. Uh, and I think that this is an indication of just how poor uh, relations are at the moment. As I said at the start, very understandably, and one would hope really that uh, the war in Ukraine, the awful war will come to a conclusion very, very soon.
2: Lara, our second story has to do with the other crisis that is happening to the world at the moment, besides what's going on in Ukraine, and that is um, climate change. And in the midst of all this, the UN um, releases a a report uh, that is probably the most stark of all stark reports we've had as yet.
4: It is, Jonathan. It really is. Um, so the the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, as most people will have heard of them, periodically release reports um, on their assessment of how uh, climate change is at the moment and where we're going. And this is stark, beyond belief almost. Um, I suppose there's so much in there that it's difficult to distill down, but the main thing to take home is that things are actually far worse than we thought. Um, And, you know, for instance, 30% of the maize growing areas in Africa um, and 50% of the bean growing areas in Africa will be completely wiped out potentially by the end of this decade if we don't make a change, which means people are going to starve to death. I think two of the most interesting parts of it is that um, one is slightly hopeful and um, there is a lot of um help in cities and it's the kind of thing that people think god cities are big they're dirty they use up a lot of energy But actually, um, cities have the ability to be very climate friendly. They bring a lot of people together, which means you need less resources because resources are shared. And so there's a lot of hope in cities. So if we can make the cities that we have much greener, then this is a great potential. And the other thing I think was really fascinating is that technology is not going to be a silver bullet. So a lot of people are relying on this, you know, magical 12th or 11th hour of, you know, machines coming along to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere we need to remember that it's in an equilibrium. So the CO2 that is um, sunk into our oceans and our land reservoirs, as soon as you suck it out of the air, it just comes straight out of there and fills it back up again. So we can't rely on this. But the, the hopeful thing is that in the, the bleakest of all the, the news, and, and they have said that any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. So if we make the change this decade, we potentially can offset the worst effects of climate change. But the change has to come now.
2: Um, I suppose, in a way, it is, um, it is the same message we've been hearing over and over again. And I suppose that is one of the problems with Good advice is that it doesn't change in the same way as fad diets um, are no better than uh, the the last fad diet. Uh, When you think of of GPs giving advice on how to stay healthy, a lot of the time it is eat healthily and exercise. And unfortunately, that message stays the same um, while everything else um, changes. And um, I just wonder what sort of effect this awful report will actually have on nations after them being fed the same line for for many years. I mean, I just don't think any report is going to catalyze change. And I wonder what the tactic might be in the future to try and change what happens before Um, we're forced to do it much more than we already are. Shane, our third story has to do with black holes.
3: Yeah. When is a black hole not a black hole? In 2020, uh, scientists uh, thought that they discovered a black hole right on our cosmic doorstep, a mere 1000 light years away. this is in the Constellation Telescopium um, and they thought it was a black hole because they saw movement of two stars and the, 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 the movements didn't uh, follow usual gravitational predictions. And so something is pulling on them, they, uh, they, they figured, and they said, they postulated it was a black hole. And so the European Southern Observatory used the very large telescope and the very large telescope interferometer uh, to look at this single blob of light that contained two stars and they they said that if a black hole was involved then um the two stars would be separated by by a relatively large distance and if there was no black hole involved they said um the two stars would be closer and when they observed that's what they found and so they now think that the the reason for this erratic or unpredictable movement is that one of the stars is a vampire star, which means it is literally sucking the mass out of the other one. Um, And this is what is uh, sort of um, accounting for its strange orbit.
2: So so the, the black hole isn't a black hole at all?
3: No. Uh, so And of course, it, it raises the question, how do you see a black hole? They're black. So you, the way you look at, for them is their gravitational effects. So when they saw this unusual gravitational effect, they said maybe it's a black hole. Turns out it's something more interesting, a vampire star.
2: I was wondering, you know, when you have a black hole so close, does that make it much more... Um beneficial because you can uh, observe things um, better. You can do um, clearer pictures and so on. You can understand it a bit better. Is is this sort of bad news that we've lost a black hole or is it good news that we've gained a vampire star?
3: I I think you could look at it both ways, but they're certainly excited uh, to have found this this type of star.
2: And finally, Lara, our last story um, is to do with uh, that plague of teenagers, Acne.
4: Absolutely, Jonathan. So so acne and it's been the bane, as, I, as you said, of all teenagers existence for for, you know, since since time began and about 50 million people in America suffer from acne. The population's only about 330 million. So that's huge. That's nearly a sixth of the population. Um, and there is a drug called Roaccutane, which is the brand name over here that a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, it's a drug that very effectively treats acne, but it has a huge amount of side effects. So it's a kind of a, a last line treatment in many ways. And this new research that was published in Science Translational Medicine has looked at what it is that Roaccutane is actually doing. And they looked at the hair follicles. So it was previously believed that an infection um, of C acnes in the hair follicle is causing a pimple to, to be produced. Right. And what happens is the this fibroblasts, which are the little cells around the hair follicle, as they found, are turning into fat cells. And it's quite unexpected. These fat cells are producing a thing called cathelicidin, and that's an antibacterial. And what they found is when you treat with retinoic acid, which is basically roaccutane, which is a derivative of vitamin A, it's increasing this natural antimicrobial that these pre-fat cells are producing. Um, And it's really interesting because it's massively reducing then the amount of acne. And so it's a potential treatment in the future. If you could find and target exactly what it is that's producing the cathelicidin, you could maybe reduce the the harmful side effects of drugs like roaccutane, but still have the beneficial effects of reducing the, the burden of acne.
2: Do we know what causes uh, acne, uh, Lara, and wh- why some people get it and other people don't?
4: Yeah, there's definitely individual elements, you know, um, skin care regimes, and things like that. But more often than not, it's just genetics. It's a familial background. So it's just unfortunate and there's nothing you're doing. It's just it's, it's a damn a damn bad luck.
2: So do we see any hope for the uh, teenagers among us with this uh, new information? Is it likely to, to make its way into to products, do you think?
4: Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, roaccutane's a brilliant drug. It works really well. So it's about removing the side effects. So if they could, you know, just distill it down, get the bits that do the bits you need and take away the bad bits, then hopefully it could be better in the future.
2: And while it may seem like a cosmetic thing, um, for, for some people it really does have a, a big effect on their self esteem, their 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 mood and uh, and their quality of life in, in some respects and that sounds like a, um, an, an exaggeration but it, it really does so it is um, good news on that front um, Dr Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr Lara Dungan thanks very much alright on the way how to identify the best swimmers in your sperm Yes, welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can text us 30 cent 53106. Particularly if you've had issues with fertility, because that is the subject of our next piece. Fertility issues, of course, affecting millions of people worldwide and can have a profound effect on the well being of the people who are going through it. Um, I know we've covered it on the program. Uh, I've gone through this issue with my wife. Struggling to conceive is an extremely stressful thing. And a lot of the time, sperm is the problem. And because there's millions of them in a single, well, go, um, how do you pick the best swimmers? Well, my next guest is Professor Sean Fair. He is uh, from UL and the Chief Scientific Officer of Neomimics. Just to let you know, we will be talking about uh, reproduction in this uh, particular piece, so... Well, if you haven't gone through that with the little people in your life, you may have some questions to answer after this. So, um, Sean, this is a major growing problem worldwide, isn't it? Infertility. And I was wondering how often is it the, the problem with the sperm that's actually causing this problem for, for a couple to conceive?
1: Yeah, so thanks, Jonathan. Uh, so approximately one in six couples will suffer from infertility. And it's a, a misconception that it's a woman's problem uh yes uh one of the major contributing factors is the age of the woman and not only does she have uh, a reduced number of eggs as she goes into her late 30s but the quality of the eggs deteriorate as well but in about 50 percent of the cases there's one of the the main contributing factors is a male factor in fertility as well i.e. sperm quality and typically if you think about as a, a couple age and move into their late 30s uh so too does the men the men and uh you know usually at least, um, and there's a growing uh, obesity problem in the Western world, there's a sedentary lifestyle, and all of these things feed into poor sperm quality. What we see over the last 40 years is published research come out a couple of years ago, and it showed that in the Western world, sperm counts have halved in 40, in approximately 40 years. Uh, so wow. we're very quickly getting to a point where you know, male factor infertility is a bigger and bigger problem.
2: When we talk about sperm count uh, and, and dropping so much, are we talking about the number of sperm uh, that are in each ejaculation? Or are you talking about the the number of quality sperm? Because obviously there's, there's issues not just with number, but also with the, I suppose, the fitness of the sperm, right?
1: Yeah. So we're talking about we're, we're talking about both. So when I said, first of all, the, the number is halved, uh, I, I was referring specifically to the number of sperm. So. You know, a typical ejaculate might have, you know, approximately 100 million sperm. Um, when it goes below about 20 million sperm, a man is deemed to be uh, subfertile, And that's kind of the threshold of around that 20 percent. Uh, and we've, that's been shown in animal studies as well, is where you go below approximately that 20 percent, that male will have a difficulty in getting his partner pregnant.
2: And- what? I, I just don't understand the math of that, though, Sean. Explain it to me. Um you only need one sperm to to fertilize an egg and you know 20 million versus 100 million like it still seems like a huge amount of chances why does why is just a a factor of of 80% drop mean that 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 um fertility is a huge issue
1: Yeah so even uh, it's a long and torturous journey up the female reproductive tract <laughs> that's the long <laughs> that's, that's the long and short of it uh, I'm involved in some animal studies uh and they're uh you know involved in some sheep studies where we can deposit a billion sperm in the vagina of the sheep and where we count the sperm up in the fallopian tubes where they meet the egg there's only we're only recovering tens of sperm okay so wow that's the sort of loss that you're getting as you get up along the female reproductive tract the vast majority of sperm never get out of the vagina the vast majority of them never get across the neck of the womb called the cervix
2: and- ah, okay. I thought it was like, I thought they were all nearly there. Um, so, so it's just a few, a few. It's a
1: few super, we call them, I suppose, a few super swimmers, but the female reproductive tract is very clever as well. You know, it's there as a, uh, I suppose, uh, it's a complex selection process by which it selects the best sperm, the elite sperm. Um, and it wants its one beautiful egg to be. Uh, fertilized by the fittest sperm. Do
2: you mean it runs like sort of a, an obstacle course for the sperm? Uh,
1: absolutely. There is a whole raft of mechanisms. These have only come to the fore, I suppose, really in the last, you know, in the last number of years. And our own group here at the University of Limerick is working on these. Um, so there's a whole series of processes by which the female reproductive tract selects them. So for for example, one of them which we're working heavily on is called rheotaxis. So if you think around the time of... Uh, a time of ovulation, when a woman ovulates, what happens is the amount of mucus she produces increases about tenfold because estrogen levels increase in the hours prior to ovulation, and that's an outward flow of mucus. And think about salmon swimming up a river; they're swimming against a flow of water. Sperm are the same, so there's the outward flow of mucus is flushing out pathogens, it's keeping the upper reproductive uh, tract free from these pathogens. But sperm have to swim against it, and in fact, what we found is with the ability to swim. This outward flow speeds up sperm. They prefer to swim against the flow, and critically as well, they hmm. like to swim along pathways, along edges. So the narrower little grooves, the better. And we can replicate that in the in the lab, where we see that the sperm prefer to swim in in small channels. As as sperm get up further up the female reproductive tract, there's other selection mechanisms there. Um, you know, like what? Like sperm have to uh, they 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 bind. For example, when they, when they get up to the first part of the fallopian tube, what they do is they, they attach to the surface the epithelial lining of the fallopian tube. And they can stay there for hours and maybe even days. And they wait for ovulation to occur. So, you know, ovulation, we always try to have the sperm waiting for the egg, not the other way around, because the lifespan of a sperm in the female tract can be a couple of days, whereas the fertile lifespan of the ovulated egg is probably in the in the order of maybe four to six hours, so there's a mechanism there by which sperm will stay. They'll bind to the, uh, it kind of gets stuck at the fallop- first part of the fallopian tube. Their tail is still beating. It conserves energy, and then there's hormonal influences that release a few every hour, and they will move up to the upper fallopian tube, and they're ready there and they're primed for for ovulation. And when sperm get close to the um, to the egg. The egg itself or the cells surrounding the egg give off hormonal cues like they they release a, a hormone called progesterone and it's shown that that attracts the sperm. So sperm, some sperm will be attracted, others won't. It's called chemotaxis or a chemical taxi that attracts the sperm to the to the egg.
2: It's absolutely Unbelievable. The reproductive process from everything from you know from dna to to what you've described I, i'm always joe on the floor when I, when I hear people talking about how difficult it is to recreate you and me just as an aside there are a different um sort of challenges for different species when it comes to reproductive tracts, right i mean like it doesn't the duck have like a corkscrew a corkscrew shaped penis to try and Counteract the the, the twists and turns that are inside a, the cloaca of a of a duck, isn't that right? And uh, what about sheep? Do sheep have a very different inner workings um, um, when it comes to 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 other mammals?
1: Yeah, so actually, sheep is relatively similar to humans. Um, there are some anatomical differences in the uterus, but in the main, uh, I suppose sheep they deposit sperm in the vagina, similar to humans, and sperm move have to move on from there. If you compare that to some other species, and I might compare it to, to for example, like pigs, uh, in that case, when when uh, the male is mating uh, the, the female, he, the top of his penis has a corkscrew and it locks into the cervix. So it passes through the vagina, into, locks into the cervix, and ejaculation there could take 20 minutes to a half an hour. So semen deposition Blimey. is directly into the uterus. And there are different mechanisms there, again, the female reproductive tract in a pig or a dog or rodents uh, they're a little bit different because they have a lot of offspring you know they, and their uterus is set up that they can have you know 10 12, 14 offspring whereas in species such as you know humans sheep cattle um, they are it's a bit more
2: it's a bit more familiar
1: a bit more familiar yeah and and, and broadly the reproductive processes there there are species differences but but for sure they're good models for human work
2: Absolutely fascinating, and and I know that um you do work in this area, and actually Ireland is is one of the leading lights when it comes to reproductive um farming science, right? I mean in terms of the research that's done, in yeah, uh, so, Sort of. So
1: there's there's a great animal reproduction group in in Ireland. Um, you know, a lot of us studied in University College Dublin ourselves at the University of Limerick, and there are others in Chagask that work heavily in in animal reproduction and. And from at a farm animal level, it's because reproduction is, you know, is, uh, is highly correlated to reproductive efficiency and profitability at farm level, and that's driving it. And yeah. there's a long tradition there. And many of the things that we've learned in farm animal reproduction, it's transferable across to human reproduction for sure.
2: So uh, in trying to take what you've learned here uh, and uh, help couples to conceive you've worked on a sort of technology that sort of sorts out the best swimmers is that right tell me a little bit about the technology that you're using and how it might help yeah, so, couples so, who are struggling to so conceive I've been,
1: I've, I, I spoke a few minutes ago about the process which sperm go up the reproductive tract and the sperm swim against a fluid flow and we started out working in animal models with that with that research and I started working with some biomedical engineers here at the University of Limerick and with product designers and you know, that was in the early days, we figured out that first that sperm swim against a fluid flow, which is quite novel at that time, Uh, and then within micro channels. So again, that they prefer to swim in small channels. So we developed a technology and a system by which we can stimulate the sperm. So with human sperm, then to stimulate the sperm to swim against a fluid flow. So we challenged them for about 30 minutes, they swim against a fluid flow. And what we're trying to do is mimic what happens in the female reproductive tract. Mim- you know, nature knows best, so we should mimic it rather than doing some of the artificial sperm selection that's, that's currently done. And
2: when you say artificial sperm selection, how do we normally pick good candidates for IVF?
1: Yeah, with some, with some difficulty because there's, uh, the most common procedure that's used is a, a centrifugal method. So you put sperm on top of a liquid that contains nanoparticles and you spin it around, and it sends the most dense sperm to the bottom of the tube, and those dense sperm tend to have the best motility. So you sepa- right. you separate the sperm out from the liquid portion, but it's quite crude. and And in the past, that that was probably okay because traditional IVF was where uh, you pop those sperm that were that went through that process, put them in on top of a bunch of eggs, and they kind of fertilize themselves. Nowadays, how most fertilizations are done worldwide. Is under a microscope, a woman's the egg is is uh, is held, and one sperm is picked up and injected into the egg in a process. I've, see,
2: I've seen this process; it's crazy. There, yeah. I mean, it looks so insane so, so, um, that, so, a so, tiny, thin, long needle um, going inside the egg just to deliver one single sperm.
1: So now, the person, you know, the, there's there's very little natural selection. Now, or actually no natural selection. Now, the embryologist selecting that that sperm better select right. So they do. I mean, they they use the best tools that's available to them, and it works quite effectively in that they uh, select a sperm that has normal motility, uh, has normal shape, and it's quite difficult because us guys, even if you're fertile, you, you're fertile with, uh, or you're considered to have normal sperm shape if just 4% of your sperm have normal shape. Like, where else would we get wow. a, 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 such a low threshold? So they have to... They have to search through, you know, the other 90 or 100 sperm to get, find four that have good shape.
2: So um, what does your new technique do? do? Do you sort of take sperm, force it to, to undergo a, a similar sort of obstacle course and then pick out the ones that make it to the, the finish line first? Yeah,
1: basically, yeah. So it's a we, we stimulate sperm with a natural, uh, bio, what we call a biomimicry or a natural process, uh, and we select sperm that get through that process. And then we present the embryologist. The idea is that we present the embryologist with a with a selection of good quality sperm. And our data to date would indicates that the sperm that we select, they have really good in terms of shape, in terms of motility, and key as well is that they have better DNA integrity compared to uh, the method that I talked about, the centrifugal method. Wow. And and we know that from previous studies that um, that. If, if a male has high levels of DNA fragmentation, so poor sperm with poor DNA integrity, uh, their partners are at twice the risk of a miscarriage.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, even just the name alone does not imply that, yeah. that, that that's a that's a good thing that's going on. So in terms of predicting how much uh, better a chance a couple might get of a successful um, implantation, like have you any data on that?
1: Yeah, so we we don't have any human data yet because it's quite early stages. Uh, we have we have some data from a mouse model that we uh, tested our our technology on, and we showed within the lab that the sperm that we select we increased fertilization rates within the lab by eight percentage points, and we increased implantation rates when the embryos were transferred into female recipient mice. We increased implantation rates by fourteen percentage points. Now, you might think that eight and fourteen that's not uh, you know, that, that that's modest. But if you put it into the context that, uh, you know, a, a normal if you, if you think about a, a human reproductive cycle, a IVF cycle, only about one in three are successful. So that's about 33 percent. So if you were able to add, you know, another 14 percentage points onto that, you're very quickly getting instead of one in three working, maybe one in two working.
2: And so um, from from the moment you get the sperm donated, um, how quickly do you have to run this little test and then bring out like what happens to those sperm? Are those sperm OK while, while they're waiting to be chosen? Yeah, how long yeah. do they last outside of so, sper- the man and the woman?
1: Yeah, so sperm are quite robust. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example at an extreme level in like in the pig industry. Uh, they, they don't freeze sperm. They keep sperm uh, in liquid form and it can live for five or six days outside in the you know you keep it a temperature controlled environment in the human context in an ivf setting you let the semen liquefy for about 30 minutes and then it can be used for you know a number of hours is fine our technology takes about 30 minutes to sort the sperm uh but sperm are quite robust little cells i mean if you think if you think about them they can be frozen they can be thawed out uh and that, that th- those processes work quite well.
2: well it sounds absolutely fascinating um that is uh, Professor Sean Fair from UL and Chief Scientific Officer of the Neo Mimics Project. When do you think um, Sean? Just before I let you go, very quickly, when do you think couples might be able to to try out this technology um, for themselves?
1: Yeah. So look, we're still working within the university, so we have some fine tuning of the system, and we're doing some some uh, some trials at the moment. But you know, we're in the process of looking for funding for the next, you know, investment for the next phase. Um, there's about a two year, uh, two year period with which we need to bring it through regulatory because it's a regulatory device. So all going well, you know, we're probably in the second half of 2024.
2: Well, the best of luck with it, Sean. And I know um, having talked about it on the program, as I say, and, and, and know so many uh, people, including ourselves, who, who struggle with, have struggled with fertility. It's great to see anything that will help uh, those people um Manage to to get what they really want, which is which is a, a healthy baby. Uh, Sean Fair, thanks very much.
1: Okay, thanks, Jonathan.
2: I don't know about you, but I thought that was absolutely fascinating, and uh, I learned quite a lot about a subject um, I'm only vaguely <laughs> familiar with. Um, just going to your comments from uh, last week's podcast, we were speaking first about the um, Celtic dinosaur that was found in Scotland last week. Jark Skikanach is how the Irish would pronounce it. I'm not sure how Scots Gaelic pronounced that, but um, it's a completely new genus of pterosaur represented by a newly described fossil from sky, uh, says Colm, go the Celts. Uh, and, and someone has actually translated the meaning. They say the the Gaelic meaning is um, a winged lizard. Jark is a lizard. I didn't know that. Thanks very much for that. Um, on meteorites, uh, Tyrone San says, I would love to find a meteorite. This is off the back of the story of Onya um, O'Brien, actually an English woman who was looking for meteorites and found one of the largest and most important meteorites in British history, the Winchcombe meteorite. She told us the story last week. Uh, Tyrone San says, fantastic, I'd love, to meet a, I'd love to find a meteorite. Of course, I'd never keep it because it's illegal to keep them. Is it? I think some people, I think there is some, I think if it lands in your your land, you're allowed to keep it, although you, you probably shouldn't. They need to be studied by experts to help unlock the evolution of our solar system, um, Tyrone continues to say. A 4.6 billion year old rock totally unchanged is hard to comprehend. Indeed, and uh, it was fascinating to hear how important it is to get these rocks before anything happens to them and, and that this the particular meteorite is now encased in nitrogen in a glass box um, with marigolds, the only way you can actually touch its surface because they want to preserve it as it was, as it came from the skies. That's and that's it pretty much from last week. Um, thanks for listening to this week's show. Um, my thanks to producer Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and... Jojo Cardoso, who is on sand, will be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious.
0: Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.